One of the things that's been on my mind is I've been, <laughs> I would say all week, but not all week, because I've got to confess, the Holy Spirit used some friends and family to give me, I'm going to use convict, but I felt guilty, because he said, what are you doing about Father's Day? I got a call from Ben Wiener. He's not here. I got a call from Ben Wiener earlier this week. He says, what are your plans for Father's Day? I said, I don't know. When is it? <laughs> and he says, when is it? Mike, it's Sunday. I said, oh, obviously I don't have any plans for Father's Day. I didn't even know when it was. So then I go up on Tuesday and Wednesday. My wife and I were up in the cities at our daughters, and my son-in-law is a pastor, and he's just uh, moved to a new church, his first time as a senior pastor. And he asked me, what are you doing for Father's Day? I said, I think I'm speaking on Revelation. He looked at me like, really? Father's Day? I said, well, I guess I didn't even know it was Father's Day. And he's just shaking his head. And I said, what are you doing for Father's Day? Now, I'm going to tell you this, but don't anticipate this, okay? But I'm going to tell you what they're doing. He says to me, we're going to serve a four-course meal during the service. I go, you're going to do what? He says, well, when they walk in the door, we're going to give them a sausage on a stick wrapped in a pancake. I go, seriously? Okay. Can you imagine the syrup thing? I don't know how that works. And then he says... <coughs> About at the, the time when we do our announcements, receive the offering, we're going to give them a fruit, I believe it was. I'm thinking, okay. And then he says, right in the middle of my sermon, I'm going to stop and we're going to serve them, and I don't remember what it was. And I'm thinking, okay. And then the fourth course is going to be an ice cream bar as they're leaving the building. And he says, what are you doing again? <laughs> I said, nothing. <laughs> we're not going to feed you, I'm sorry. So I scrapped what I was going to do in Revelation to, to focus a little bit more on Father's Day. And uh, it's probably what I was supposed to do in the first place. I just am a slow learner. Living out our faith is one of the things I want to mention as we go through this today. Living out our faith. When we live out our faith in front of our families, it will definitely have an impact on our kids. You've probably heard the phrase, oftentimes, more is caught than is taught. And I think that's a reality. It's amazing. If you have children or have raised children or around little kids, it's amazing what they learn when you don't know they're learning anything. They're just watching and they learn. And living our life that intentionally will have an amazing impact on them. I'm sorry to say that <clears throat> most of us don't always do it well. I know I don't. I know I didn't. We make mistakes along the way. You know, one of the things that I <coughs> felt or thought when I first watched that video was, oh boy, I didn't do so good with all of that stuff. But the reality is and none of us are perfect. The only one who's a perfect father is the one we've been singing about this morning, our Heavenly Father. And there's so much grace and there's so much love. Have you ever felt like you've had broken or shattered dreams, especially in regards to raising maybe your children? And it goes beyond our children. Have you ever felt like you're, you're watching someone go on a path that you know is going to lead to s some destruction? And they don't even act like they care. They don't want to hear a word you're saying. And you feel so hopeless. You don't know what to do. You get so entangled in a situation sometimes 
even when you've done things right, but you find yourself entangled in this situation and there's not a thing you can do about it. Except cry out to God. The father that we're going to look at today is, I think, a father that would have had all of these feelings and emotions and thoughts. And we're going to look at it in a parable that Jesus taught. Our goal is to honor and encourage all men. I believe that every single father in here would lay down their life for their children or their grandchildren, as it should be. But I also believe every single one of us in here have blown it more than once, as it really is. Not that it should necessarily be. But we make mistakes. There's times when something happens or something gets said and, and we walk away thinking, boy, I should have handled that so differently. Or, boy, I handled that really badly. And we can walk away feeling so defeated. As I mentioned earlier, oftentimes on Father's Day in the past, when I remembered it was really Father's Day, we would talk about leadership qualities that men should have, the responsibility that God gives us as the leaders of our home and how we should do better. And sometimes it almost sounds like a, a little bit of a lecture, a little bit of a spanking. And I think we need to, uh, to remind ourselves that none of us are perfect. But we do have an example who is perfect in our Heavenly Father. We're not going to achieve that level of perfection. And we under, need to understand that there is so much grace and mercy and love available to us that we need to make sure that we just continue to go forward. Confess, repent, whatever is necessary, and move forward. I'm going to look at the story today of the prodigal son. Very familiar parable, I think, for most of us, if we've been in Sunday school or church. It's one of my favorites because there is so much there that uh, we can look at the father, we can look at the prodigal son, the, who we call the prodigal son, who is the younger brother, or we can look at the older brother, and there's lessons to be learned from every perspective. A parable. First of all, what is it? A parable is a story. And usually it's a pretty simple story. If you're familiar with it's Luke chapter 15, if you're familiar with this chapter of the Bible, we sang about one of the parables this morning, leaving the 99 to go look for the one. Or the woman who loses a coin and is going to do whatever it takes to find that coin. And then the third parable in that chapter is this one, the parable that we call the parable, parable of the prodigal son. It could have been called the parable of the father, or it could have been called the parable of the religious older brother. It could have been any of these things. And this morning I want to look at it from the perspective of the father. And I'll probably take a little more liberty than I generally do when I'm looking at Scripture, but it is a parable. It is a story. And as I'm reading this parable and story, I'm trying to imagine all of the things that would be going through my mind if I was that father. And the situation that this parable Jesus is telling, it's his, his story, his parable, and it always has an illustration of a spiritual truth when Jesus speaks in parables. So the story is simple, the spiritual truths are what really is important. And in this parable, Jesus is really demonstrating the love, the mercy, the grace, the patience, of our Heavenly Father 
but he's using the story of this father to make those spiritual truths evident to us. So I want to look at the father first. And we're not going to read the whole chapter. I hope you read the whole chapter. I'm not going to be putting all of these verses on the, on the slides overhead. I want, to, I want to go through it more as a story this morning. And as we look at the father, he evidently has been successful in his business. He evidently was a farmer of some sort. Evidently, he had accumulated some wealth. So he must have been pretty good at what he did. He worked pretty hard. We, we can get those things from the story because we see that he's got servants that work for him. We see that he, he evidently has an estate of some, some considerable value because of what the younger brother is going to come and ask him for. We don't see any mention of the mother, and I don't know why. It could have been a cultural thing. It was all about the dad and his sons. Or it could have been a situation where the mother was no longer present, had passed away or something, and the father was left with raising two sons on his own. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I can tell you this, whoever this father was in Jesus' story, he would have been an imperfect father just like the rest of us. Even though God is using him to demonstrate the attributes of a perfect father. He would have made some mistakes along the way. Having a successful business and developing a, to the place where your sons are working with you and you've got servants working for you probably required a lot of hard work, a lot of commitment, probably a lot of extra time. Time that maybe could have been used differently in regards to his kids. It's easy for us as fathers, as men, to get so focused on what we're doing to provide for our families that we forget who it is we're trying to provide for. The business becomes the thing. Our job becomes the thing. Our time and our effort is directed there at the neglect of possibly who we have at home. Our spouse. Our children. This father maybe didn't do any of that, but he certainly could have as a successful businessman. He probably, like most of us, had dreams of passing on his business to his kids. That's why he was working so hard. Maybe not passing on his business, but helping them to get started in their own business. We knew he had land. We know he has livestock. There's success there. So we know some of these things about him, but in the midst of all of this success, something went wrong. It went really wrong with his younger son. When we read the whole story, you'll see as you read the story that his older son seems to have more of an attitude that dad's almost like a, a taskmaster. His focus is on, I've done the work. I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. Your, the, our brother, this younger brother, your youngest son, he ran off, left us. He, and he says, you know, he's messing around with women and partying. He did all those things, and you have this big celebration when he comes back. I've done all this. I never left. I've worked my tail off for you. I've done everything you asked, and you've never even killed a goat for me to have a party. Something's wrong even there. His religious attitude, his, his pharisaical attitude, if you would. But it's more about the younger brother and it's more about the father. And the younger son, 
it almost seems like if I would contemporize it a little bit, it's almost like the younger son, you know, I, I don't like doing this. Here I am trapped on this farm or whatever and raising livestock and working in the fields and yeah, it's great and all. I got a nice home. I get, yeah, all that's nice. We got servants. I can boss around. That's all good. But I want to go out and have some freedom. I want to go out and discover myself. I want to go find myself. I want to do these things. And that's what happens. The younger son. One day he goes to his father and he demands, and that's the word used in the Scripture, he demands his inheritance from his father. Now, in the Jewish culture at the time, it was very typical that at the death of the father, the sons would split, divide the inheritance. And we know from their culture and from history and from the scriptures that the oldest son would always get a double portion. In this case, there's just the two sons. So in this case, that would mean whatever the estate was worth, whatever it was all worth, the younger son was going to get a third of it and the older son would get two-thirds of it. And the younger son and the older son would know this. But there's a catch there in their culture. The inheritance was passed on when the father passed away, when he was dead, not before. So as this younger son comes to his dad that day and demands his inheritance, it's just as if he was saying, I wish you were dead. Or to me, you're no longer alive. I want my share, and I want it now. Wow, would that be a jolt to a father. The younger son knows the culture of the Jewish people. He knows that one-third is his because he's asking for it. But he's demanding it while his father is still alive. What a slap in the face. What's the father do? It doesn't tell us the specifics and the details, but in my mind, I'm thinking, man, alive, what would I have done? I'd have said, get your butt back out in the field. You're not getting one dime while I'm still alive. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? Am I the only jerk in here? (laughs) Who do you think you are? But boy, what would that kind of response done this son. He was already in a bad place. So the father gives him his one-third of his inheritance. Now again, I try to modernize this in my own mind so it, it, it becomes even more powerful, I think. If, if my dad, and he was a farmer, and I went to my dad who was a farmer and had livestock and land, and I said, I want one-third of the estate, and I want it now. Can you imagine what he would have to liquidate and what kind of financial pressure that would put on a farmer to take a third of the assets out of the business? But the dad does it. He does it. I think he probably realizes his son has a hard lesson and he needs to learn it. So he says yes. The older son, meanwhile, just continues to work, doing what he's supposed to do. It tells us then that the younger son, once he gets his money, he picks up his backpack or luggage, whatever he took, his knapsack, and it says he goes off to a distant land. 
if you studied that, it means it went off to a foreign land. He was going to a different place or a different culture. And if you know Jewish history at all, you know that God was very protective of his people and told them to stay away from those foreign lands, those foreign peoples. Don't mix with them. Don't mess with them. Stay away. That's where he went. And it tells us he went and he, he lived a loose lifestyle. I love that phrase. Loose living. What does it mean? It doesn't tell us there. Maybe he went and made some bad investments, high-risk investments, going to double or triple his money. I don't know. But we do know when the older brother makes reference to him, he really makes reference to women and whoring and all that stuff. So whatever his loose living was, it wasn't godly. And that's what he went to do. It was a foreign land. We don't know how far, but we know it would be a, a considerable distance. We don't know for sure how long he was gone, but it was probably a relatively considerable amount of time. And he squanders his fortune. And all of a sudden, it's all gone. And when the money's gone, in my mind, I'm seeing all of his so-called friends that he developed who were mooching off of him as he was having fun. They're gone too. All of a sudden, he realizes he's alone. And he doesn't know what to do. I'm in this mess. I'm broke. I'm in a foreign land. What do I do? Well, like most of us, he tries to fix his situation in his own strength. I guess I better go get a job. Now, when it tells us about the job, you've got to under, again understand the Jewish culture a little bit. To a Jew, pigs were unclean. And there's lots of instructions to stay away from the unclean. And he finally does get a job, it tells us, and he is working for someone who raises swine, pigs. And he finds himself, it says, in the fields with the pigs. He's hit rock bottom, we hope. Matter of fact, not only is he working with the pigs, he is so hungry, he is so broke, that he's sitting there feeding the pigs and he's finding he's envious of the pigs and he wants their food. It doesn't get it much worse for a Jewish young man than where this guy was at. And in verse 16 of that section of Scripture, there's these words. And it says this, No one would give him anything. No one. And just knowing how life is, I, I can see, man, you go into a place, you go into a new area, a new arena, and you've got all kinds of money, and you just have it. You're the good time guy, and you're going to just let's all party, and I'm paying for everything. Man, you got friends galore. But when times got tough, he had nothing. And it says no one would give him anything. Rock bottom. About this time, he remembers. Maybe I really didn't have it quite so bad before I wanted to run off and discover who I really was. He remembers that my servants, my dad's servants, have it way better than this. He's hit rock bottom. He's reflecting. And we discover something. It seems like, you ever noticed how many times we say this or maybe in each one of our own lives? When we finally hit rock bottom, it seems like God finally does some really good work. You ever notice that? How many times do we say, well, I don't know what we do. I love them dearly, but they've got to hit rock bottom. Guess what? It, God's always doing good work. 
But it's that rock bottom place we have to get to sometimes before our mind and our hearts are open to God's good work. And in this situation, he had hit rock bottom. He was broken. And there's a scripture in there that I use oftentimes where it talks about what happened when he hit rock bottom. And it says he came to his senses when he hit rock bottom. What does that mean? Quit being stupid. No, that's not what it means. He didn't get stupid when he made these bad choices. His intellect probably wasn't affected during this process. So what does it mean when he says he's slopping the hogs, the food that he's feeding him looks good to him, he's so hungry, his clothes are probably in rags, he's got no friends, he's got no one that cares about him, and no one will do anything for him. But he comes to his senses. The word there means it's like he had a revelation. It's like he was awakened from this stupor that he was in. He had a revelation. And that's usually what it takes for most all of us at certain times in our life. We may have heard something a million times, but until we get to that place, God reveals it to us. He gives us this revelation. He gives us an understanding. And we want to just slap our forehead and say, how could I have been so blind? It's called deception. It's called the power of deception. Golly, as a father, you can only Im- I can't imagine if the, if the dad really knew, if he could have seen into this distant foreign country what it must have been like for him. I'm pretty sure he didn't know the details, but I'm pretty sure he knew how this was going to turn out. He knew it probably wouldn't end well for his son, but he let him go anyway. So finally he decides, I'm going to go home. In verses 18 and 19, right after it says he came to his senses, it's almost humorous because he begins to rehearse his speech. Anybody ever been there? Oh boy, I got, I'm in trouble. I've got to go talk to him. I've really screwed this up. I, 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 let's see, what am I going to say? And we start rehearsing our speech. I mean, I did this many times as a kid. I've got to go tell Dad, boy, this is not going to be good. I wonder what I can stick in the back of my pants so it's not as bad as it's going to be. And you start rehearsing this speech and you're coming up with excuses, right? This is what he's doing. He's starting to rehearse his speech. He's going to, okay, Dad, I've really blown it. Man, I, I don't, I'm horrible. I did a horrible thing. I abandoned you. I abandoned my brother. I, I just left. I took a third of the, the assets out of the company and I just went and I lost every single penny. I don't deserve to be your son. Will you please let me be a servant? And he's rehearsing this speech in his mind and, and then I'm thinking, man, he's now he's heading home. And I'll bet he, didn't w- I bet he wished he didn't have to walk so far so many days and, and go through what he was going through in his head as he was trying to imagine the outcome of what was going to take place. I mean, every step, every mile, every day, I'm crawling back a complete failure. I'm crawling back and going to have to face my dad and hope that he'll take me back as a servant. All of these things that I've done. I can only imagine each step he's taking. The guilt, 
the, the shame just overwhelming him. The fear that I'm going to go back and I've got this rehearsed speech and when he, I get, get this speech done, he could say, sorry, see ya. Fear of rejection. All of those things that we can feel, guilt, shame, condemnation, rejection, when we've messed up and we feel like God can't possibly love us. We've blown it so badly. He doesn't want anything to do with us. And this is one of the spiritual points that God, Jesus is making in this parable. Those are all lies. Our Heavenly Father never is turning His back on us. His arms are always extended. There's always grace. There's always mercy. And yes, there's always consequences. But we got God who will get us through. So he's worship, or he's he's rehearsing this this speech that he's going to give. But then the story says starts to shift to the dad, and it says even while he's a long ways off, his son is a long ways off, and the father sees his son coming. In my mind, I tried to imagine. I wonder how he recognized him. His clothes were probably in rags. He's been gone for a long time. He'd been going through this famine in this foreign country. He was starving. He's probably skinny as all get out. But his father saw him coming. What was he doing out there in the first place looking for him? And he feels compassion for him. And he goes to meet him, embraces him, kisses him. And when he gets to him, the son starts his speech. And he acknowledges his sin. He says, I have sinned against God and I have sinned against you. And, and he's starting to go into his well-rehearsed speech and he just gets interrupted. All that practice is for nothing. Because his dad doesn't even let him get that far. The father. The one I'm focused on most in my mind is this father. His faith being lived out. The hope that he had, that his son was going to come home. In spite of what he had done, he had hope that his son was going to come home and it never wavered. It's as if the dad went out there every day and he knew he stood there and he watched his son walk away until he went out of sight. And he knew what direction he went, so every day he would go there and stand and he would look in that direction, hoping, believing that he's going to come back. He's going to return. And a matter of fact, it's as if when I read the story, it's as if he's already rehearsed how he's going to respond. The kid may have been rehearsing his speech, but the dad already knew in his mind, if when I see him come over that hill, when I see my son, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Because he doesn't hesitate for a moment. The son's surprise to his dad's reaction must have been amazing. At this point in the parable, something really amazing happens that again, if you don't understand Jewish culture at all at that time, you, I miss it. You miss it. It says that the dad went running to meet his son. Okay, he's excited. Jewish men didn't run. It was a sign of, of disrespect to yourself. You just didn't pull up your robes and take off running. It would be interpreted as a complete loss of dignity, a loss of self-respect. 
loss of all pride. But he didn't care. He didn't care who was going to see anything. He didn't care if his servants were watching. He didn't care. He knew in his mind that my hope is being fulfilled. And now I'm going to demonstrate my faith. It's going to be lived out in the way I respond to my son who was lost, who was dead to us, but has returned. He's been found and he's alive. And he runs to him to meet him. And when he runs, he, he gets him and it says he embraces him. And if you read the wordage, the words, and if you look at it in, in the Greek language, he says it embraces him and he starts kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. He's hanging on his neck just kissing his son. And his son has been walking for who knows how long, rehearsing his speech, fearful, filled with guilt and shame. And his daddy's just loving on him. Demonstrating the love of a heavenly Father. Demonstrating the grace, the mercy of a heavenly Father. Demonstrating the attributes that we should have as earthly fathers. He turns to his servants and he says, go and get the best robe we've got. The fanciest robe we've got. We're going to put that on and we're going to cover up these old raggedy clothes and we're going to put a robe on him. The best we've got. Put a ring on his finger. A ring in that time frame was really a sign of, of wealth and dignity. And a lot of times in families have had that had any means or substance, it would they had a signet ring. It was like like the family ring, the family crest on the ring. And he says, Here, I don't want a servant, I want a son, and you're my son. Here, put on this robe. Put on this ring. Put sandals on his feet. In those days, the servants often didn't have sandals. They were barefoot. You're not a servant. You're my son. Put sandals on him. And then go and kill. Get the fatted calf, the one we've been saving for something special. Go get the fatted calf and we're going to kill it and we are going to have a celebration. We're going to rejoice. Some translations say use the word merry. I think to be merry, joyful, it, it falls way too short. They were rejoicing. We're going to rejoice and it says that my son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is alive. He's returned to us. We're going to celebrate because this isn't the servant that's come home. It's my son who's come home. There's a little segue in there to the older brother. And I think when we look at that, we also see a glimpse of the Father's love and faith being poured out. The older brother, who kind of feels like his dad's been a taskmaster his whole life, I'm working and doing and doing and doing and doing, and he, he hears this noise and he calls the servant and says, what's going on back there at the house? I don't, what's going on? Your son, your brother. Your brother has come home. Your father's son has come home. That's a celebration. They've killed the fatted calf. He's put the robe on him, put the ring on him, put the sandals on him. And boy, oh boy, he, he, he gets up and he starts running to the house to join the party. No, he doesn't do that at all. He gets mad. He gets angry. Jealous. I'm the one that's been here the whole time. I'm the one that's been working and working and working. It's not fair. 
It's about legalism. It's about a pharisaical attitude. I did, therefore I deserved. And the father, again, I think he demonstrates his love, not just for the younger brother, but for the older brother. Because what does he do? He hears what's going on with his older son. And he leaves the party. And he goes out to his younger son and tries to reason with him. Tries to minister to him. He's living out his faith, loving him. And telling him, all that I have is yours. He said, but you never even killed an old goat for me, and yet you kill a fatted calf for the one who's been running around whoring and spending all your fortune. It's not fair. It's all yours. And the reality is, two-thirds was going to be, it was his. Everything that was left was his. And the strangest thing happens in the story. It ends right there. We don't know what the son did. But we know what the father did. It celebrates a, a father who is hopefully, patiently waiting and watching for the child's return. And how he recklessly embraces his son when he comes back. That's all I was thinking about as we were singing that last song, Reckless Love. That we have a heavenly father who recklessly loves us. We can't earn it. Like that older brother, we can't work hard. We can't do this, do that, do the other to make Him love us anymore. He just flat out loves us because He is love. Living out His faith in a very, very difficult circumstance. Demonstrating that boundless love of our Heavenly Father. A love that's not limited to circumstance. It's not limited to time. It's not limited to the situations or performance. It's unlimited love from God. The reality is this. As long as we breathe, we have a Heavenly Father who offers life. For the one who doesn't know Him, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know Him personally as their Heavenly Father, He's patiently waiting for you to respond to Him. He's not turned His back. He's not waiting with a hammer to pound you because of all the things you've done. He's just waiting for you to respond to His love. And for the wayward or the prodigal child, or for any of us who are backslidden and our relationship with God is cooler than it was at one time, He's patiently, with great mercy and grace, waiting for us to return to that first love, to Him. So whether we're, He's waiting on us that have never accepted Him as our Lord and Savior to respond, or whether He's waiting for us that have cooled in our relationship with Him or backslidden or actually become prodigals, He's waiting for us to respond and return. Either way, it's your move. It's our move. For many of us, it's almost impossible to relate to that kind of God, that kind of love, that kind of Father. But He does exist. And He's very real. And He wants every one of us to become His children. 
Once again, if you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and become a child of God, He's just waiting. It'll be better than you imagined. It's worth everything. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank You that we do call You our Heavenly Father and You are our Heavenly Father. God, I thank You for the truths that are in this letter we just listened to that come directly from Your Word. That that's who You are and that's how important we are to You. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here who's believed the lie of the enemy, that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth that we've just heard. And Lord, I thank You this day for the men in all of our lives, fathers and grandfathers or other men who have spoken into our lives. God, I pray that You would bless them. Bless them. Father, for those fathers or grandfathers that have gone on and are no longer alive, I pray you bless the memory of each one of them in our lives. I pray you'd even give us new insights of the sacrifice, the love that they demonstrated to us and for us. Father, I pray that as we continue through the rest of the day that we enjoy our time together with family and friends. And, and, and keep in mind the kind of loving God that you are. Pray you watch over us and protect us as we go our different directions today. And pray that all that we do brings glory and honor to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.